Welcome to Cake the Podcast, the podcast about cake from State Library of Queensland. This is the show that unravels the sweet and not-so-sweet stories behind our favourite desserts to understand how we got here. I'm your host, Caitlin Sorey, and we're back with the final two episodes of the series. Hope you had a good Chrissy. In today's episode, we're looking at culture through cake and how our memories, traditions and celebrations can help you find home, no matter where you are. Over the holidays, I made my grandmother's pineapple pie and finally nailed it. It was our baby's first Queensland Christmas. But our little girl isn't just from Queensland. Her dad is New Rican, a.k.a. a Puerto Rican from New York. Te quiero, mamá, princesa, te quiero mucho. That's Frank's mum, Jackie. This time of year, Frank really starts missing his home in Brooklyn because his mum cooks up a storm. She starts cooking before dawn on Christmas Day, making a massive spread, including pork shoulder, pasteles, and the dish of honour. Arroz con gandules de costillas, meaning it's pigeon peas, rice with ribs inside. And it's like, oh, yeah, Frank goes snapping his lips, you know. I can taste it. I'm serious. Jackie shows her love through food. She's a true romantic. And you can hear it when she talks about falling in love with Frank's dad, Cisco. I saw stars. I thought we were floating on clouds. And all I saw was him. And I didn't hear the, the cars coming back and forth, the kids playing in the front of the yard, the noise of people crossing the street. I didn't hear any of that stuff. I just saw him. And he was looking at me, and that was it. And I was like, in heaven. <laughs> this is it. I'm done. This is the love of my life for the rest of my life. When it was clear Frank and I were serious, Jackie made a point of sharing the food closest to her heart with me, and that meant sharing recipes from the island of Puerto Rico. What are the desserts? What kind of desserts do you make? Oh, tembleque, rum cake, and the famous one is the flan. For all us Puerto Ricans, flan is the big thing. Flan. Sounds delicious, but what is it? Flan is like a custard. It has evaporated milk, about eight eggs. Then you have cinnamon and the anise and cloves too. And the sugar. Can't forget the sugar because you got to make sure that sugar turns into syrup. Jackie tells us the key to flan is its consistency. And then you put it in the oven until you see it's like a little jiggly. And then from there, you turn around and flip it. And then all the juice from the sugar pours over it and it becomes like an apron over the custard, a gold amber color right on top of the the custard. Because Puerto Rico is in the Caribbean, the kinds of desserts they're into are things like coconut and condensed milk. The island is a very different place to the New York Frank grew up in. Pure, beautiful sunshine that you don't want to leave. The scenery, the sky, so clear. At nighttime, it is gorgeous. It's peaceful, it's it's kind to you. The island is a place that you never forget. And you always say, hey, I want to go back. Both sides of his family came from Puerto Rico. So Frank spent his summers there on his dad's parents' remote farm, helping his grandfather work the land. He had sugar cane, he had mamey, he has oranges, all kinds of bananas, coconuts. Oh my God, coconuts everywhere. He taught Frankie how to find different kinds of root that we can eat. Yuca, yame, batata. You know, that was in our land. They gave my son the opportunity to know what the land is and what it has to offer, you know, to learn and to be proud of Puerto Rico. The farm is a truly special place that's located in the mountains and not easy to get to. 
its hills and narrow and kind of scary sometimes because there's only one car fitting and then you can have a truck coming right next to you and say, oh, wait a minute. So it's very, very narrow. You sometimes have to stop because you get a cow or a chicken across another, the road or a couple of dogs saying, hey, I'm here. Do you have any food? After Frank's grandfather passed, his grandmother Cheba lived alone at the top of a mountain, living off the land until she was 91. Oregano and all the spices and the herbs in, in her little garden. She called it a little garden. That was a huge garden. It was huge. Jackie tells us that Cheba would take what her little garden gave her and create masterpieces. I mean, my mother-in-law was the best, you know, chef, as I call her, because she was a chef. She gave me food that I now do as a staple for everybody every holiday. She's given me a lot of gifts, honestly. She has taught me a lot of things, and it was nice being her daughter-in-law. Frank's grandmother passed last year, and he didn't get a chance to go back for the funeral. One of the things he misses the most is her cooking. And it's hard to recreate those recipes because not all of the ingredients are available in Australia. But that wasn't going to stop Frank. So he tracked down the only other Puerto Rican we could find in Australia for some help. I met one Puerto Rican about 12 years ago. I was looking for Sasong. Found his place in like Liverpool and Sydney. And I was like, man, do you have any Goya here? He goes, yeah, yeah we got plenty of Goya. He was like, how, how do you know about Goya? I was like, yeah, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm just missing home. He goes, I'm Puerto Rican too. Since then, the only one, the only one. I've heard there's a couple here, but I've only met one. This is Will Sanchez, or as he's known on Instagram, Chef from the Hood. He's a caterer from, you guessed it, New York City. But while Frank's from Brooklyn, Will's from the Bronx. Bronx and Brooklyn, pretty much the same damn thing. Like, I grew up in Hunts Point, and I just saw an article on Instagram saying that Hunts Point was the top five most dangerous neighborhoods in the Bronx. I was like, wow, nothing's changed. It was I've seen no. some crazy things. And my family's crazy. I'm, we're Puerto Rican. We're Puerto Rican. I mean, I, who tells me that they don't have a crazy Puerto Rican family and you're full of crap? That's right. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It didn't take long for Will and Frank to start bonding over the food they grew up with. Same like bacalao, bacalaitos. Bacalaitos. Sugarcane, just... <laughs> oh, sugarcane and quenepas. Come on. Quenepas. Mm, you know what I miss? Alcapurias. Pastelas. Oh, God, I miss I haven't. I actually haven't had a pastele probably about like 10 years. Oh, I'm sorry. All that food talk made Frank hungry, so he started grilling Will for the best spots to find Puerto Rican ingredients. Do you know what I would do for one tostone, for one Maduro right now? Okay, you know where you can find them? Mm. You go to the Indian shops. They, for ah. some reason, I don't know why, they have them everywhere in Sydney. Interesting. When I first moved here, I used to pay $7 for one platano. Wow. And my family was like, what? We get $10 for a dollar. I'm like, yeah. yeah. That's right. And I didn't care. When you miss it, you just don't give a crap. Will tells us he got out of the Bronx in the most New York way possible. I'm a breakdancer. Ah, nice. That's my number one. Yeah. I'm a breakdancer. He started breakdancing under the tutelage of Crazy Legs from one of the most famous breakdancing crews, the Rocksteady Crew, making money busking in Times Square. Soon, breakdancing would take Will around the world. Started traveling the world at 15, 16, just traveling. Did that all the way. I mean, I'm still doing it now. I'm literally, I just finished the show now at Brunswick Picture House. So I did that for years. I came to Australia in 2005 and I, I tried to live in other countries. There's always something wrong. Oh, I can't speak the language. Oh, it's a bit too cold. But like Australia, I can live here. 
When the tour was over, Will went back home to cold New York winters and dreamed of life in Australia. When he was offered another chance to dance down under, he jumped at it and his life changed forever. That's when I met my wife. Their connection was instant and they bonded over their love of breakdancing. But there was one problem. Will had to go back to America. We did long distance for a whole year. Skype was very new, choppy as hell. She was calling me from pay phones. Three in the morning, I was spending $1,500 on phone bills. I went over to surprise her here. And I was like, how do you feel about me staying? And she was like, let's make it work. And so began their journey, navigating the Australian immigration system. Oh my God, the amount of debt we got in for me staying here was <laughs> shocking. She got loans from everyone without telling me, had to sign contracts. Did I get to the airport? What do I do? I miss my flight. Add that to the bill. <laughs> and, she, and she was like, she was like, I'm going to kill you. Like, I'm seriously, I'm going to kill you. Like, I'm going to kill you. And yeah, I've just been here ever since. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's a real love story. Yeah, it definitely is. Their early days weren't easy, but Will's connection to food kept their spirits high. This is straight Puerto Rican. We had no money. And I was like, all we need is mince and rice. And sometimes <laughs> my wife would be like, this is like prison. I go, I got you, babe. And I'll put a little smiley face of mince on the white rice. She's like, yeah, that makes it better. Just like Frank's family, Will's mom passed along the rich tradition of Puerto Rican cuisine. My mom is an incredible cook. Incredible. She is no joke. That's the one thing I miss about New York. It's not the restaurant. It's my mom's cooking. Things were going well for Will. They had two kids and his dancing career was going strong. But when COVID hit, that work disappeared and he still had two mouths to feed. So he started a catering business in Byron Bay and hoped the New Yorican flavours of his childhood would make him stand out. But making Puerto Rican food for Australians wouldn't always be easy. When I do pop-up restaurants, oh my God, that thing becomes a nightmare. Trying to make yellow rice for 200 people, ooh, there's been some mistakes. But with a little trial and error, Things are going well. Like, I always try to push it. Like, yeah, I cook my steak for an hour. Thinly sliced with onions and peppers and vinegar mm. and garlic. Oh. And I'm like, it's just goodness. Like, it just melts in your mouth. Literally melts in your mouth. As the only other Puerto Rican in Australia we could find who's also a cook, we had to ask him about Puerto Rican cake. And just like Frank's mum, he went straight to flan. Flan is a sweet tofu. Interesting. Nailed it. So imagine you get a nice firm tofu, right? And it has caramel and everything on the bottom. That's what flan is. Before it became popularised by Spaniards, flan could be traced back to ancient Rome. And as the Spanish colonised the Americas and the Caribbean, flan followed too and became a staple in Puerto Rico and eventually New York. When I was young, I was like, I hate this flan so much. Every party you go to, like, oh, I bought a flan. Oh, so did I. I also bought a flan too. Oh, yeah, your mother made a flan as well. It's like, oh, my God, we got three different flans here. We got a, like a flan fight. You know what I mean? It all tastes exactly the same. Like, you're all the same family. You learn from my grandma. So I was so over flan. One year, Will decided to have a Thanksgiving dinner in Australia. At one end of the table were the Americans. At the other end were the Australians. The Australians, they have pavlova. Definitely not touching that. Definitely not touching pavlova. I was like, I'm not. Oh. All the Americans on one side eating flan and pumpkin pie, and everyone's on this side eating pavlova. And then we finally tried. I was like, pavlova, not my thing. Australians like pumpkin pie, disgusting. But they ate the flan. And I ate it, and I was like, oh, it's not that bad. And then I went to Puerto Rico, and I was like, the toasted coconut. I was like, that's a game changer. Flan was the middle ground between the Americans and the Australians, 
just as it had been between the old and the new world, from Spain to Latin America. From cakes being spread via colonialism to surviving and adapting to it, Australia is home to the world's oldest cake makers, and they're using innovative ingredients that come straight from the land. We've got beautiful anise myrtle, cinnamon myrtle, there's curry myrtle. All of those things can go really well in cakes, you know. We're heading back to my dilly bag, Arnie Dale Chapman's sovereign food store in Forest Glen. You may remember her from our episode on pineapple. She's a Gallier and Guame woman and a classically trained chef. Mum and Dad always encouraged us to follow our dreams, you know. So in the end, I went for chefing. But it wouldn't be long until she felt a calling to the bright lights of the big smoke. Yeah, so I went down to Brisbane, got myself a job at the Greek Club. In West End? West End, yeah. Yeah, loved it. Annie Dow loved it so much, she would come in early to her shifts just to learn the secrets of Greek cuisine from the head chef, Rini. I really enjoyed making baklava and all of those gorgeous kathethas and domothers and things like that. I really loved the Greek food. And it, it gave me an insight into tradition a bit more because I didn't have a lot of that knowledge from way back. Like I was born in 1962, so I wasn't recognised as a citizen of this country until 67 when that referendum happened. So learning off Rini really gave me an insight into tradition and how important it was when you're connecting with your culture. Annie Dale wanted to share the power of connection through culture and food with her people. But first, she needed to learn it for herself. I realised that we needed to start informing Aboriginal people, our own mob, about what sustained our people for hundreds of thousands of years. And that's when I started looking into bush food, talking to mum, because my mum's not Indigenous, but mum had a lot of knowledge about that space. I started talking to elders and aunties and uncles, started looking at what can I do to make a difference for Aboriginal people when it comes to my training as a chef, you know? Her research would reveal a deep knowledge of the land and innovative ways to make tasty treats. So previous to white flowers and stuff coming into the country, foods were actually gathered like wattle seed and grain and ground up and then made into patties, you know, made into cakes, cooked on the coals, cooked on big hot rocks. And things like the kumbungi grows in lots of waterways. It's tall and it's got that brown husky thing on the top. Yeah, I've got some around near my house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that was common across, you know, all the waterways. And the rhizomes were pulled up and... They They were steamed beside the fire and then twisted to get out the starch and that would would be made into cake. So they they really knew how to harness what they had, you know, on country. And our people are still going back and making those cakes today, which is fantastic. And this is just a small part of the rich tradition of cake innovation in Aboriginal communities. One of their greatest culinary cake achievements comes from a bright green football-shaped fruit that was once a snack for the dinosaurs, the bunyanut. The biggest one we ever seen was 9.75 kilos. It was huge. These giant prehistoric pine cones live at the top of towering trees, with some reaching 50 metres tall. And Arnie Dell tells us the ancestors didn't just wait for bunny nuts to come crashing down. Traditionally, if they wrapped themselves in lawyer cane and bounced up the tree, you didn't damage the tree or anything because they're your, your people. You grab the pods from the top and you threw them down. I didn't realise that they were going up into the trees to harvest the nuts because I thought, oh, they'll just wait for them to drop. They're big trees. Yeah, but they're, they're sweeter. 
and better when they're thrown down from the top. These days, yes, these days I think I wait for them to drop on the ground. (laughs) But climbing a giant tree to free a boulder-sized bunion nut is just the first step. Usually a a cone, you're probably getting 1.8 kilos of proper nut meat to use. Each cone has about 80 to 100 individual nuts, rich in essential amino acids, complex carbohydrates and minerals. They would put that into the fire and crack it open and it steams in its little casing. Then get out the meat inside, mash it up, add some ash from the fire and then let it just dry beside the fire on some paper bark. And they would add echidna fat to it. And that would give it back its moisture. And then you'd be able to roll it into little patties and cook it. Wow, that sounds delicious. Mm, It does, but I haven't been able to get myself any echidna fat. But I think if I substituted a bit of duck fat, it might work. All of this knowledge has helped Arnie Dale come up with a few bunion nut recipes of her own. She uses it for the base of the cake. So I tend to boil it for the 20, then put all the meat onto a tray, throw them into an oven with just the pilot light on and let it just dry out. Then grind it and you'll make it into a nice flour, a nice powder. And it's really soft and it's a gluten-free one too. And even the cake filling. When they're warm, you can blend them up and put them with native honey, juice from the Davidson plum, something like that, and flavours it up as a cream. And then you can put it between your sponge cakes. You can use it as a really lovely honey and bunya cream to put on your scone. The bunya was more than just a versatile crop. Every three years, there would be a harvest, and this would lead to a massive gathering of thousands of First Nations people from as far as northern Queensland to Victoria. These bunya corroborees featured sporting contests, marriages, law was handed down, and all kinds of food was shared. The bunya was so significant to First Nations people that even the colonists recognised its value. At first, the Governor of New South Wales declared the bunya tree a protected species, stopping all logging. But as soon as Queensland became its own colony, the logging resumed. The bunya season for us is really, really important. Local Aboriginal people, they own those trees and it's part of them. So it's really important to have that connection. The last traditional bunya gathering is believed to have been held in 1902. But in recent years, a modern festival has been held on Kabi Kabi country. Aunty Bev Hand has, has, you know, rekindled the Bunya Festival, as you know, so they have cooking demonstrations and people make different cakes and things and because of the revival of the Bunya Festival, people are more aware in how to use things now, so, yeah, it's lovely. Arnie Dale says once you start looking into the world of bush foods, there's so much experimenting we can do today. I do love the cupcake. The cupcake's fab. What I've done with mine is made a salt bush caramel and piped it in. I've done similar things with my Davidson plum jam. You can put wattle seed into your batter and then you could make yourself like a a lovely little macadamia praline or something to throw over the top. Like I said, it's about stepping outside that bit of a comfort zone. And Arnie Dale says that learning to cook with what the land provides would be better for all of us. I just love using bush food and I love sharing it with everyone else because I truly believe that Australia will be a better, a kinder nation when they can embrace all of First Nations people's 
foods, culture, practices. As long as your heart is pure and you're in there for the right reasons, people will share. People will give you that knowledge, you know. It only takes listening. And I think that's why I love food because when you get around a table and you've got all this tucker, you know, and you can smell it and it's all delicious, you then start having a yarn Mm. and that's the most important part, I think. From ancient trees to ancient Greece, in the Greek Orthodox community, cake can help the soul transition from this world into the next. On any given weekend, you'll find sometimes six platters of a funeral cake called kolovar at the Greek Orthodox Church in West End. And the woman who made all those platters for 12 years, Demetria Athanasis, still lives in Brisbane. As her daughter Sia lets us into her beautiful light-filled home, a gold religious icon catches my eye. Each family has its own saint. That's Saint uh, John Chrysostom, yes. And it's a family saint. It looks old, like something you'd see in a museum. A particular icon is over 200 years old, so it's been in the family, so that's why I've framed it. That's come from Greece. That's come from Greece, yeah. yeah. It's so special to have that connection. Yeah, oh, very, very much. Knowing that it's gone through the hands of my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mum and me. For as long as Sia can remember, she's been eating kolovar after mass to commemorate the dead. These traditions keep our culture alive and our faith alive. This has been going on for centuries, yeah. Preparation to make the kolovar is already underway. Demetrius puts Sia to work blanching the almonds. We just wait until the skin becomes a bit loose yep. and then we'll take the skin off. You start doing that, love. This is the wheat. You put it in a saucepan like this. And you boil it and it, until it's cooked. Then you drain it and then you, you put it to dry on towels. There's lots of steps. Yeah, so it's a long process. Colovar is a mix of seeds, grains and sugar, formed into a mound on a platter and decorated with icing sugar. You just put any, anything you like in there that is nice and sweet. So it's like wheat, which symbolises life, but then also lots of like fruit and nuts and things that are also kind of yeah. seeds. That God has given us, yes, of course. Demetria was born in Greece and remembers coming to Australia after World War II ravaged Europe. It was really very hard, you know. Country people are very humble. You don't have many things, especially during the war, you know. Wake up in the night and you tell your mum you're hungry. What could she do? You know, what could they do? My grandparents too. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard for them. So when you first came to Australia, was it just so overwhelming to be so far away from home? Oh, yeah, love. Especially when we had to leave our grandparents, you know, because our grandparents looked after us. My mum was out with the goats and (laughs) looked after the sheep and everything, and grandparents brought us up. Yeah, it was sad to leave them. Demetria was just 10 and didn't know any English. Those early days as immigrants are part of the family law for her daughter, Sia. They had to start from scratch because they didn't know the language. And I remember mum saying to me when they first came out, they were crying and crying and they wanted to go back home because it was a foreign country, foreign customs, foreign language. So poor mum was 10 when she came out and they put her in with the grade ones. <laughs> so she didn't like it much. I imagine Brisbane was a very different place back then too. Oh, yes, it was, love. And so the family found comfort in keeping up the old traditions in their new home. 
Kolobar is a cake that has its origins in ancient Greece, but is now closely entwined with the Orthodox faith, and the ingredients are symbolic of a much bigger story after someone passes. Just as it says in the Bible, a grain of wheat must fall into the ground for it to then grow up. That's why we use wheat. It's a symbolism of, you know, rebirth and, and growth. It's like a very comforting message when you've lost someone. It's like, well, this isn't just goodbye forever. Goodbye forever. Yeah, no, no, we don't believe that at all. We live in the hope that we will see our loved ones again. Yeah, that, that gives us hope. And that belief makes Kolobar an integral part of the funeral. Everyone who dies, you make a little plate, you take it to the church on the day of the burial, you throw that in the grave. After the priest says all the prayers and everything, he throws that in, does the cross with the oil and throws that in as well, you know. And that is just the first step in the ceremony. When a person passes, Kolobar is made and shared with the community, sometimes for years after the funeral. These memorial platters, when a person dies, it's the nine days, then the 40 days, then three months, then six months, then nine months, then a year. Then you do it every year. Wow, so there's like a real process of like yeah. marking time of how yeah. long since the person passed. And it's important to do this because of the soul. We believe that God in his great mercy, with our prayers, he will um, forgive the soul and take it to paradise. So that's why it's important that we do these memorials for our loved ones. The conversation around Colivar is a deep one. So deep that C has gotten sidetracked and burnt the sesame seeds. Mimo to self, don't walk away from the sesame seed. <laughs> oh, yeah, darling, is that burnt? <laughs> That's burnt. Not good, not good. Oh, no. So what's happened here? Burnt it. Oh, no. And we don't want that. Darling, well, I think that's all right, love. Leave, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> all right. She, she's the boss. She's the expert. She's the expert. Smoky sesame seeds aside, the colivar is starting to come together. Okay, well, we're ready here. We'll get the platter. So, so far yeah. we've got yeah. wheat, almonds, yeah. cinnamon, sultanas, almonds, of course, pomegranates, and icing sugar in there. The colivar needs to be dedicated to someone's memory, but who? Frank has an idea. My grandmother died this year, so this will be for her. Good on you, love. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yes. 91. Oh, she one godless. <laughs> she died with the whole family around her, so that's good. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Can't ask for more than that. Like many Puerto Ricans, Frank's grandmother was a devout Catholic. Do they do this in the Catholic Church? Do I don't know. Things like this, but not this. No. Yeah, but I think this is a nice tradition. And like, yeah. like it's spread in the Orthodox yeah. faith, why can't it spread even farther? Exactly. And uh, you can eat this in her memory, you know, and just say a prayer. Once Demetria has mixed all of the ingredients together, she heaps it into a mound on the platter. And this is like the grave. You know, when you put a person in the grave, you don't do it flat. You do it like a mound, yeah, how the grave is. She covers the colobar in icing sugar, tamping it down to make it smooth. Then she meticulously decorates the icing sugar with pomegranates and edible beads using tweezers. Just doing a little decoration there. Yes. And she finishes the platter with Frank's grandmother's initials. What's uh, your grandmother's name again, love? Chepa. Chepa. And her surname? So it's C-L. Yes. Yeah. We'll put CL. That's good, love. In the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen. May God rest his soul. That's so beautiful. My dad's going to really, it's going to mean a lot to him. We pack the Colabar carefully into the car for its long drive back to the Sunshine Coast. When we finally get home, we get Frank's parents on video to share the experience. It's a little bit mucked up from the ride. Beautiful. I like the place. Nice, eh? They're the sweetest. Okay, do you want to say a prayer, Mom? Dear Lord, thank you for this family. And at this moment, we celebrate her life in heaven with this beautiful cake and that she is blessed every single day. Amen. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Here we go. Buen provecho. Buen provecho. Buen provecho. Enjoy it. To a great person. Mm. Mm. It's good. It's good. Sweet. There's mm-hmm. like a kiss of sweet. But it's earthy. Ooh, and pomegranate. Mm. Now we've had the colivar, it's time to make the flan. And Will has a few tips for us. You can't really mess it up. I haven't really done much with, like, caramelising sugar before. Like, how do you know when it's right? You'll smell it. Like, you go from, like, a light brown colour and then you go to a little bit darker than a light brown. Anything more than that, it's going to be really, really bitter. And also, don't leave it in the pot. You have to pour that thing straight away into the moulds. Straight away. Because good luck trying to scrape that thing off. Okay, let's go. It's supposed to be easy, but we'll see. We've got our condensed milk, we've got vanilla essence, a little bit of salt, and a whole bunch of eggs. Eight so, eggs. Eight eggs. And eight eggs with condensed milk. We need to caramelize the sugar. It's starting to thicken. Oh, the hard work in my arms. It's like toffee. Welcome to being a Puerto Rican grandma. <laughs> Nobody said it was easy. All right, so it's starting to brown now. Oh my God, success. The sugar has turned into caramel. So now we coat the bottom of the flan bowl and then we pour in the rest of the flan mixture. Oh, okay. It's done. Looks good. Smells good. All right, it's time to eat. You ready for the flip? Yeah, here we go. Oh, that's working. Wow. That looks great. It does. Look at that gooey caramel everywhere. That's a nice slice. Okay, here we go. Buen provecho. Buen provecho. Mmm, good. How's this stack up to your grandmother's? It doesn't, but it's good and it tastes like home. Coming up next week, it is the final episode of the series and we're going international, baby. Yes, we're looking at the top Queensland cake makers who have broken through to the world stage. And we're visiting the Patissier of Pain, Adriana Zumbo. Cake the Podcast is a production of FNK Media, the State Library of Queensland.